Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Hey, everyone. It's Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that if you hate the sound of people breathing or chewing, you're not alone. You may actually have a disorder called misophonia, which is when you have an extreme negative response to auditory stimuli. We don't really know if this disorder is because you have dysfunctional signaling in your neurons of the anterior cingulate cortex and insular cortex, uh, which is related to Tourette's syndrome, like maybe it's reverse Tourette's. Who knows? But it's kind of interesting that there is a group of people out there who is made incredibly angry by the sound of you smacking your gum. So if you're smacking your gum, cut it out for God's sake. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest on Bulletproof Radio is Dr. Tarek Pereira, who's a board-certified psychiatrist with an MD from Harvard. And this guy is a, a world-class expert in medication management and psychotherapy. So he's looking at what do drugs do and what happens with psychotherapy. He's also been ranked one of the best psychiatrists in America, and he's one of the thought leaders in psychopharmacology, and he's president of the TMS Society. He's been on Dr. Oz and is the founder of Contemporary Care, 
which is a team of experts and clinicians who use empathy and have novel cutting edge treatments. So he's looking to, to fix deep psychiatric stuff using all kinds of cool things. And that's why I've had him on the show. So Tarek, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Happy to be on. What caught my attention was the talk that you gave at NYU's Science Festival. And what was really interesting there is that you were talking about not just, hey, let's give people a, a ton of drugs, but looking at very detailed levels, what do the drugs do and how do they work with these other things we do, like, uh, like therapy, like talk therapy and other things like that. So first of all, how did you get into this stuff? Well, um, I was always interested in, in, uh, in the brain. In fact, that's why I got into medicine. Uh, I find that that's the last frontier in terms of research and, and mystery. Uh, and beyond just the brain, it's really in psychiatry. Uh, just as a, as a uh, sort of anecdote, I was trying to decide between neurology and psychiatry. So there's a big difference between the two. Uh, for the longest time in neurology, if you have a weakness or uh, some kind of uh, sensory problem, you can actually, based on the symptoms, uh, focus in on exactly where the problem is in the brain. But there's not much you can do about it if you have had a stroke. In psychiatry, we had very little clue of what's going on, but there was a lot we could do. So that's why I chose psychiatry, because you can really make a difference in um, people's lives and also those around them. Uh, but I was... Uh, interested in beyond just medications and therapy. As you know, medications are very imprecise and nonspecific, uh, in part because they were created at a time when we really did not understand how the brain works. So I got, uh, during my residency at Columbia uh, in the Division of Biological Psychiatry, there was a lot of research going on, and I got deeply interested in, in uh, two areas. One is the formation of new brain cells in a part of the brain called the hippocampus and its role in treating depression, that's more of a basic area. And the other is neuromodulation. That is the ability to specifically focus uh, magnetic beams and increase or decrease the activity of specific parts of the brain that in turn alters the circuitry which can change uh, psychiatric and certain neurological conditions. So I've, I felt that neuromodulation is a much more precise way to change how we think and how we feel, uh, more so than neurochemistry. Neurochemistry is very imprecise. Uh, whenever we have a thought, what's being activated is really a brain circuit. So if there is a thought problem, a problem in our thinking, what we really need to do is change that brain circuit. And neuromodulation allows us to uh, begin to start doing that. This is one of the the reasons that I, I asked you on the show, because being a, a quote, brain hacker, <laughs> someone who's using an external uh, magnetic signal right. to change the brain, this is this is groundbreaking stuff. When did this start happening uh, in, in terms of, of, of humanity? I know that there's like old Greek stuff about magnets on heads, but in, in terms of modern uh, modern use of this, when did magnets and heads start meeting science? So this started around a little over 20 years ago in England, and it was used as a neuroscientific tool to either stimulate or block specific parts of the brain without actually damaging it. And it allowed us to study how uh, the brain circuits work. 
uh, as you may know, a lot of how we understand uh, in terms of functional uh, neuroanatomy comes from brain lesions. Uh, we learned a lot after World War One because people were missing different parts of their brain and they had different deficits. And we certainly continue to learn over the last uh, several years um, uh, through strokes, etc. What TMS does is it allows us to block a specific circuit without actually damaging. It's a reversible uh, sort of lesion, if you want to call it that. And then if you can see a loss in a certain ability, and then we say, aha, that's uh, what that uh, region is doing. So uh, it was originally used as a neuroscientific tool. To give you an example, Aurora Pascal Leon and his group, uh, some of the early studies at Harvard, they were able to look at a part of the brain, and I may be wrong on the area, but I think it was Broadman's area 17. If you give slow TMS and disrupt that area, uh, your ability to visualize things when your eyes are closed is lost. And so they said, ah, that's the area that you need. If I'm looking at a picture, and if I close my eyes and I want to see that picture again, that's the area that is important. Remember, we will not damage the brain. All it does is you sit in a chair, you bring this coil over your head, it creates a magnetic pulse. The concept is based on Faraday's law. So if you have an electrical field that is moving in a certain direction, it creates a magnetic field perpendicular to it. And the magnetic field is about four centimeters. It's about the size of my, you know, my fingers. Uh, it's an invisible field. So you bring this device over your head and you activate the magnetic field. And now uh, in, in the shape of my fingers, it, there's a field that's created and that's going to go in and get converted back into electrical impulses and it can disrupt or activate brain circuitry. And so it was used as a tool to really study different parts of the brain. Another example is where if you look at a certain picture, okay, and the light falls on your retina, it takes 110 milliseconds for that to hit your occipital cortex and for you to be consciously aware of seeing that picture. Now, if I show you a picture of a happy face and give a disruptive stimulus to my occipital cortex uh, within 110 milliseconds, I wouldn't see that happy face. However, if I then follow that up with a neutral face and I ask them what you saw, you'll say, well, I'm seeing somebody with, with a neutral emotion. And then you say, what does your gut feeling tell you that that person is feeling? They say, well, my gut feeling tells me that they're happy. Because even though the occipital cortex did not pick up the area thanks to TMS, the limbic areas, the emotional areas already picked up the stimulus. So uh, it kind of helps distinguish between what's consciously apparent to us versus what's unconscious. So those are some of the early experiments that were done with TMS to study different parts of the brain. Then, you know, I think uh, in the mid nineties, uh, people, uh, especially people at like Columbia, but you know, others around the world got used, uh, interested in the idea of, okay, what if we do rapid TMS? That's what's called RTMS. When instead of getting a single pulse to block an area, we do rapid TMS to stimulate an area over and over and over again hoping that that area will then become activated and stay activated through the concept of neuroplasticity. And after so the advent of RTMS, they started doing it to activate different parts of brains in people with psychiatric disorders. And it was RTMS then that went on to be FDA approved for depression. Now I must add, the reason they decided to go with RTMS is because of neuroimaging or functional neuroimaging, which is another technology that was developing in parallel. Neuroimaging, a functional neuroimaging, is forms of MRI scans or PET scans 
where you can actually see your mind at work. You know, for the longest time we believed we couldn't see the mind. It was like trying to catch lightning in a bottle and now we do. You can see which areas are metabolizing and producing oxygen, which areas are producing glucose. And based on that, we can see if you're thinking a certain thought, what area is activated and how that area is linked to other regions of the brain. That allows us to study how the mind works. We can see if somebody's telling the truth, if they're lying, they're laughing, they're, you know, they're in love. You can really read somebody's mind. One of the most consistent findings with that was decreased activity in the left prefrontal cortex, the left frontal part of the brain, which is an area that is important for enjoyment. So if you have a life, that area is underactive, you cannot enjoy things. You have what's called anhedonia, which is one of the core features of depression, and that leads to a whole circuit involved in depression. So what they began, and they find that when you treat depression, whether you gave them drugs, therapy, or even electroshock therapy, People who got better showed a normalization in that area. So they thought, aha, that's the magic bullet we need to target. So they started then using the TMS device and stimulating that area five days a week for several weeks. And over a period of time, that area gets activated and that is associated with recovery from TMS. So it went from a scientific tool to a clinical tool in conjunction with, uh, with this functional neuroimaging. And that's where we are right now. It has been FDA approved for depression but it's being used for a lot of other conditions uh, experimentally in both psychiatry and neurology. In, in 2003, I had a spec scan done of my brain that revealed just about no prefrontal cortex activity, including left PFC. I had uh, extensive scalloping and uh, basically Dr. Amen, uh, who was the guy behind this, the spec scan, said I, I had the brain of someone who was a hardcore street drug addict. I'd been living in a house with toxic mold, and I, literally my brain was jacked. <laughs> and I just had another one um, about two months ago, and my brain is back to normal, having <laughs> removed these mold toxins, which, which is a good thing. It was a little disconcerting at the time. But I, I definitely understand what you're talking about there. That inability to feel joy is something I've experienced. Now, what you're talking about, though, here is, is probably news to a lot of people listening, because... Magnets tend to be in the land of, you know, mystical treatments and cures and maybe acupuncture. You still probably shouldn't trust those guys with needles, even though it has a biological effect. And here you are sitting here as, as a well-credentialed uh, physician who's using magnets to induce changes in people. How big of a device is this, uh, the one that you're using now? Well, the chair looks like a dental chair, the uh, actual coil uh, is maybe six to eight inches round, about three or four different types of coils. What we use is what's called the hardcore magnetic coil, the circular coil. There's another one in the figure of eight, which was uh, it's through a magsteam company. There's a third one where it's actually a helmet you put in and it treats deeper parts of the brain. Now, when we're talking about magnets, we're not really talking about you know, non-specific magnetic fields. We're talking about a very focused electromagnetic beam uh, that can alter the brain. If you think about the brain, it's an electrochemical organ, okay? So we can use chemistry, and we have been using chemistry to alter things, but when you do use chemistry, it's very nonspecific, imprecise. What we are doing is using that second component of the brain, the electrical component, but we cannot use electricity because electric shock goes all over the brain. But if you use an electromagnetic beam, you can very precisely change the circuitry. So this is uh, really, from a scientific standpoint, uh, neuromodulation is, is sort of what TMS is encompassing. 
is is almost a natural next phase, but it's also in many ways a paradigm shift. Now, having said that, the research for this has gone on in the leading educational centers of the world. I mean, you know, Harvard, Columbia, Duke, and certainly across uh, a lot of work in Oxford, the Max Planck Institute. So this is uh, stuff that has been done by very serious people. Uh, finally, it has left the ivory tower thanks to uh, this company called Neuronetics that got it FDA approved for uh, depression. And this is where I actually set up the TMS Society because I wanted there to be a, a sort of a, a, a amalgam of clinicians who can actually do this and researchers who like the research but don't really get it out of their lab. Uh, and it's really the combination of the two that can turn some a good idea like this into something that is useful. Because not every good idea can become accessible. And the analogy I used, the flying car, I thought it was a great idea. It's just that there was too much red tape and the guy who invented it decided to give up on the idea. So this works. It is a very uh, clean and precise way of treating the brain, but there's a lot more that needs to be done to make it mainstream. One of the things that, that I do as a, as a professional biohacker <laughs> is I, I use cutting edge technologies to take control of my biology uh, in ways that are not, not always blessed by the medical establishment. Um, how would you feel if I told you I had my own TMS machine at home? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, well, it's a little bit interesting because it's very hard for you to treat yourself. The, uh, so just a few things here. The, uh, people who have magnetic metal implants in their head can't do TMS. Uh, but a lot of yeah, yeah. people who have metal shunts, uh, it's made out of nickel and titanium. The risk, with the big risk with TMS, is 1 in 1,200 risk of seizures or 1 in every 33,000 treatments. And that's if you treat the wrong area. So those are the dangers. But beyond that, you know, you, you having a TMS uh, device at your home, uh, you know, uh, is, is safer than uh, maybe having a ton of Xanax at home. Uh, what a great quote. And uh, that's kind of my mindset about this as well, where there is risk, but there's also risk with, you know, almost everything you do. It's relatively small risk. And people go about all day popping uh, popping pills, prescription pills, or over-the-counter ones, or uh, even ingesting a bunch of food additives that have never really been tested for more than 10 days on rats. And, and right. so, like, we take risks, but the overall risk of putting magnets around your head, you would say, is is relatively low, unless you have metal in your head, in which case you're not going to like it. Right, right. So, again, it's not, you, you wanted to make it, make it an electromagnetic field, so yeah. Even though when you talk about magnets, some people talk about just general fer you know, ferromagnetic fields, which really yeah. don't do much. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would say, you know, in the future, something along this line is uh, uh, one that could be used at home. The, the thing that I, the only thing I would suggest is that knowing where to treat has been the problem. Okay, so when we started doing TMS, which I had to wear a hat, put like a swimming hat on. Mm -hmm. uh, what we do is, first of all, just step back. The way we find the area, we don't use brain imaging we are going to start a study that will use brain imaging to look at the areas. What we do now is uh, simpler but elegant in that we find your motor cortex. So we stimulate, remember the left side of the brain controls the right body. We find the motor cortex uh, and we find specifically within the motor cortex the part of the brain that gets your finger to twitch. So there is a strip in your brain that has representations of different parts of the body. It's like an upside down man, a very weird looking man because areas that we use more are larger. So the man has a big tongue and a big thumb, and other areas are smaller. So we find the area over the, essentially over the thumb, 
And when you stimulate it, you get a finger to twitch. Then what we do is we uh, give different uh, levels of stimulation to find the minimum stimulation required to get uh, the neurons to fire. After that, the, the computer in the machine calculates how much forward we need to go to treat the prefrontal cortex and what the dose is. And when you sit in the chair, those settings are established, the three-dimensional settings, they're established so you can go back and, and keep treating the right place. And that was one of the big problems originally, where we would just have these handheld TMS devices. We, you know, people sitting in like regular chairs, they put on the swim hat, we found the airway, we put a dot in there. And I actually had to, early on, had to hold that coil for a whole hour. It was so boring, I ran away and started <laughs> doing neurogenesis research. So the big breakthrough, I think, came when they actually found a chair where you don't have to hold the coil, found a way to reproduce the settings, and that's where the, uh, the challenge is. So if you're doing something like this at home, the challenge is to know where to treat and to consistently treat that area. So I, I have a, a cap with uh, eight magnets on each side driven by a laptop that pulses them in specific patterns. Um, so as long as you put the cap on right, you have general, um, general ability to reproduce it. So you have, are these electromagnets? Yeah. And uh, what strength is it? Is it? Do you think it's at the strength that it kind of penetrates your skull? Oh, absolutely. I, I have to look up the exact strength of them. Um, but uh, I mean, I could show it to you. I'd have to undo my headset right. for a second. But um, it's called the, the, this is the media name for it. It's called the God Helmet. It's based on Dr. Persinger's work. Have you come across Dr. Persinger? No, no. Uh, this is it's stuff is pretty out there, but they call it that because about two percent of people who who use it have a profound mystical experience, and mm. so it it puts you in a very altered state. That's why I'm pretty sure it's getting into the skull. <laughs> but <laughs> can you get your fingers to twitch with it? Have you tried using the motor cortex? I just got it literally a month ago, <laughs> so I'm not I'm not entirely sure if I can get my fingers to twitch with it. Um, I've I've used other pulsed electromagnetic frequency things, very large coils that'll cause your muscles to jump on your head, and and you feel that. But that's just inducing okay. a current everywhere in the brain. And there's, uh, right. there's various other like brain external technologies that, that either you could use on yourself. And I, as a, a hacker, I, I like that idea that we have control of our own biology. Or that potentially someone else could use on you, hopefully for your own good, not, not against your best interests. But there's, there's things with infrared lasers and, and all sorts of weird things sometimes that I've done to my head. And sometimes, mo mostly they've really helped. A few times I've kind of scrambled my language centers for a couple hours. That was bad. Mm. But what, I, what I'm really interested in talking with you about is, okay, we have this, this medical side of things. And if I put on my, my retro hat and I look at what uh, a TDCS looked like, the transcranial direct uh, electrical mm. stimulation things that people are doing to their head, if you go back eight years, few people had ever heard of it. And then it became mm. popular. And now mm. you can go... You can go on to a Kickstarter and you can buy consumer TDCS things to make you a better video gamer. How effective they are, God knows. And whether the FDA likes them, God knows that either. Right. But what's going to happen with TMS? Where you're right now at the, the very beginning of this. But when we go forward 10 years or 20 years, I mean, am I going to have a baseball hat with magnets in it? Electromagnets that are carefully focused? Like, What are the applications for this when it becomes ubiquitous? So I think the next step is to really be precise in what we're treating and where we're treating, okay? So we want to uh, uh, really link TMS to uh, fMRI. We need to know 
uh, as fMRI becomes more precise, you know, and we can see smaller and smaller voxels, and then we begin to see patterns that reflect certain thought processes. Uh, then we can say, aha, this person is thinking this, this person is feeling this, this person is feeling that. We need to know that first. And then uh, we kind of take our TMS device or magnet or whatever we want, and we go, and if, if there's, a, there's a thought pattern that we want to change, then we need to uh, have a more precise way of putting the magnet in there to stimulate that area. And that's possible. So if you do fMRI, and then you use a neural navigation helmet, you could... Uh, you know, you can you could feed the fMRI into your computer. You put the neural navigation helmet. Now your head is superimposed with the with the area that you want to treat. When you move this around, you can know where the magnet is moving, and then you say, okay, this is the area that I need to treat, and then you start treating that area. So what I would like to see what 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 this offers is precision. Okay, so we're going from things, you know, from therapy where it's just you know, shooting information to somebody to medications where we're sort of bathing the brain in chemistry electroshock therapy where you can basically shock the whole brain to saying, okay, can we alter very specific thought patterns? TMS and its its descendants allow us to do it. You know, as you get more and more advanced with TMS, you can treat deeper and deeper and more precise. But we need to combine that with neuroimaging to know exactly where to treat. And so there are three three tools. There's a neuroimaging that's sort of like the X-ray of the brain. So you know where what's, what's happening. Then you have the TMS device, and then you have this neural navigation helmet that allows you to then use that uh, that X-ray and guide the device to treat what you want to do. So, so this, you know, so I'm talking. Uh, so this is not uh, something becoming ubiquitous as much as sort of what the next stage is from a scientific standpoint. Now, eventually, people might be able to start doing these at home when they know where they're treating and how to target it, or they might go to some center and then they kind of you know, fit the uh, helmet and say, okay, what is it that you want treated? Okay, this is the brain scan. All right, now we adjusted it. Now this is what you need to do. You can go home and do this four or five times. It's a little bit like giving a prescription on medications and they go home and they do it. That's where I would like to see this go. So you talked about the ability to alter thought patterns with this technology. I mean, I'm getting shades of Total Recall, the movie here. You know, you go into a center, <laughs> sit you in a chair, and you, like, what could you do that maybe you would, would be unethical? Or like, like, you could alter someone's patterns. Can you change a core personality characteristic? Can you make someone docile? Like, should, should I be concerned about who puts magnets on my head? Uh, well, I think we can. So, again, personality is, uh, some of, a lot of personality can be changed, okay? Yeah. Uh, Mine we, did. <laughs> we, yeah, so we can, uh, you know, like, for example, borderline personality disorder, which is a commonly known disorder where people have rejection, fears of rejection, get angry, and have black and white thinking. We treat with TMS and they get better. So it turns out there's a sort of a variation of depression that's involved in this, and you treated it. Previously, nothing moved it, so we call it personality disorder. So we could actually change it. Uh, uh, now, yes, so the answer is yes. If you go in and there is a part of your personality perhaps that's not compatible with what you want to do in life, and you can see on a brain scan what needs to be changed, one can do that. You know, it's just a matter of, I mean, the human species, right? Ultimately, our goal is to master our environment. And this is yet another tool that allows us to master our environment by making us very efficient in what we want to do ultimately to obviously propagate our species. So what seems scary now might be a necessity in the future. 
I'm in full agreement with you there. Uh, I'm just asking the hard questions because there have to be a bunch of people sitting in their cars driving right now. There's probably 100,000 people hearing this, kind of twisting uncomfortably going like, someone could have me sit in a chair and they could alter my personality or alter my thoughts. So what what about like the prison system? I mean, that, that seems like a place where you might actually be able to help people who are stuck in in a pattern of destructive behavior, but you also could like fundamentally remove someone's right if they know I, I like to be a thug <laughs> and uh, I don't want you to take away my thuggishness. And like, isn't it a bit of a slippery slope? Are, are you are you talking with ethics boards about what TMS, uh, you know, what, what it can do and whether you can opt out of it and things like that? Like, I, I'm a little bit concerned about this. Yeah, I mean, I think we are uh, not yet uh, there in terms of our technology and uh, look at it very, very, uh, from very uh, sort of uh, big picture, you know, what we want to do is allow ourselves not only to be very effective in, in, in our surroundings, but to be effective as a communal being, yeah. right, big picture wise. So things that allow us to be very effective in that sense are things that obviously medicine or whatever what this field is, is going to encourage and things that make us uh, ineffective in that way or destructive in that way are things that we may not encourage uh, or, or try to treat officially, but people can always get their hands on, you know, uh, these kind of devices. Speaking of like TDCS, uh, there is some evidence that it can speed the uh, ability for people to uh, translate uh, uh, the, the films of UAVs. So if you think about yeah. unmanned vehicles, you know, the rate limiting step, we have, we have cameras all over the sky. The rate limiting step is to be able to uh, decipher it because computers can't do that. And TDCS significantly increases the speed at which people can decipher it. Now, one can ask, depending on what side of the UAV you're on, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> Fair point. So, but I, I think, you know, ultimately our, our, our technology is, is used for the better. There was... Back in the day, there was this thing called a depressive personality disorder. It was people yeah. we thought were born, they're supposed to be depressed for the rest of their life. Now we know we can treat it. Uh, so there are, uh, you know, as technology increases, it's just going to make us more effective and efficient. Now, the, the next step beyond, uh, obviously, uh, direct uh, brain stimulation is, is gene therapy. And, you know, obviously that's a whole different conversation where they could use uh, the concept of optogenetics and turn on and turn off specific characteristics and prevent some of the problems happening or when we're older, change our personality style in a way we choose because there's a lot of redundancy in our genes. So if you have a depressed gene that's turned on, you may have like 10 non-depressed genes that have been turned off. So you can turn one on and turn one off. So that would in some ways make neuromodulation archaic, but that's you know 50 years from now. Uh, that, that's that's what we like to think. It may be happening sooner. I, I'm on the list right. to get my my full human human genome sequenced. Okay. Uh, the way Craig Venter did, and uh, I I think there's there's stuff happening at such a fast rate that that we'll we'll see what's possible. And my interest in a lot of this, and one of the reasons I I've helped to create the the notion of biohacking, this idea that we are in control of our own biology, and, and epigenetics is one of the biggest things you can do to do that, um, is that. Um, if we don't take control of our own biology, someone else will. <laughs> right. So when we know that there are technologies like this out there and that you could use them uh, and just that it's possible, that actually means that we have to have the, the difficult conversations about who should be allowed to use them and when. And my answer is that I should always be allowed to use them on myself whenever I want to. But uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Now, that leads to the, the next question, though, which is, okay, 
my brain, I, I like to say this because it didn't always, but my brain kicks ass now. Like I'm pretty darn happy with how it works, but I have a little problem with symbolic logic translation and my auditory processing is a little bit low. Like when people speak Swedish and French, it sounds like mush to me and I can't play the sounds back no matter how hard I try, I don't hear them right, okay? That's annoying. Oh, and there's a visual processing thing that isn't perfect either. So I'm not sick. I'm very, very healthy, but I want to fix those things. What can I do to improve cognitive performance? Whether it's those specific things I mentioned, but everyone out there has little things that aren't quite perfect, even though they're highly functional human beings. Can we use TMS or even medication, which is your other fields of expertise we barely talked about, to improve our human performance? Like, like what's, what's the recipe for me making my brain even stronger than it would have been biologically? Right. So... Theoretically, it's possible. So there are two things that need to happen, or two things that can happen. One is, so if you think about the problem you have, you're really having a circuit uh, that is weaker than it should be, and it's affecting your life. You know, there's no point fixing yeah. problems that we don't we don't need to use. It's it's uh, so to activate a circuit, uh, there are two ways to do it. One is we need to create the biological environment in which that circuit is likely to be activated. We need to make it more permissible. That can be done with medications. It certainly can be done with TMS. But then for the actual circuit to be created, you have to start using that process. So, that, okay, you have these brain cells and the biology, and the, but now for them to become integrated, they, get on, they only get integrated if you start using uh, yeah. that technology. So I'll give you an analogy. Is now, the brain cannot make new neurons except in the hippocampus, and that's a, and the olfactory bulb, and that's an area we've done research in, and we can certainly talk about it. But in other parts of the brain, neurogenesis, or the formation of new neurons in adults, is possible in the setting of brain injury. However, so when they make uh, neurons around an injured part of the brain, they're too few to have functional recovery, and if they're not used, they die out. So there is this field of thought that something like TMS in somebody who has, say, not a major stroke, but say a minor stroke. Uh, say I have a stroke in my motor cortex, my arm is weak, not paralyzed completely, but weak. I could start doing TMS in that region and increase the neurogenesis. But then I could put my good hand in a cast, force myself to use the bad hand and get those new neurons now to get integrated into the circuitry and you can have functional recovery. So the people who are doing this kind of work with TBIs, where they would use TMS or other, maybe even medications, something to increase neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, and then forcing the person to work, uh, start using the deficit so that then those neurons get integrated into the circuit and this function recovered. So in theory with you, something like TMS or medications that increase neuroplasticity could be done in conjunction with you practicing listening to a Swedish accent over and over again. Got it. So that, that would be painful, but I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, there's also the notion of neurofeedback, and, and this is something I've, I've done. Uh, I've spent eight weeks of my life with the electrodes glued to my head, uh, training my brainwaves, so the amplitude and regularity of my brainwaves are much higher than, than normal people and particularly in the alpha segment or the alpha bandwidth. But it's, uh, it's, it's given me greater powers of self-regulation than I've ever had in, in, throughout life. And I think it's been of great benefit. I, I do it with some other, um, other executive types. I'm wondering if you could apply 
this magnetic treatment that you've got, TMS, at the same time as neurofeedback. In other words, you're teaching the skill and you're using sounds to tell the brain, good job, keep doing that, keep doing that. Well, at the same time, you're banging on it with a magnet, <laughs> which would uh, create sort of a feedback loop where you're sort of amplifying what you could do because it's an external stimulus, but also gaining those new neurological controls. Are things like this coming down the pipe, this, this cross-functional thing where we, we stack up fMRI and all these other cool technologies to let us see what's going on in there so we can take control of it? Uh, yes. I mean, there are people doing studies in, in a couple of ways. So, yeah, I, I do agree. So neurofeedback allows us to sort of focus the directionality of the new neurons, whereas TMS increases the ability of us to create those new uh, pathways. So... Uh, yes, there are uh, things that are coming along those lines. Like I mentioned the whole stroke study where you're kind of simulating, getting them to use their hand. Uh, people who do uh, treat PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder uh, do EMDR combined with it. So EMDR is where you have these, again, big picture is you try to recall the emotion, uh, recall the event, but you focus on neutral uh, stimuli. So that when your your recollection eventually will be associated with a neutral stimulus than an actual stimulus, and that kind of training retraining that we do with the brain could be combined with uh, uh, with uh, uh, TMS. And in terms of neuro uh, imaging, and that's something we are uh, uh, starting to do, uh, and there are places like Harvard doing. But we, at Columbia, we'll be doing neuroimaging guided TMS on depressed patients. Uh, we are also thinking about doing it for migraines where we can actually see which area they're lighting up and then going and targeting it. Hopefully, once we establish the proof of concept, then that could be used in other areas. You know, one, one, to give you uh, a, a dramatic example of that is there are a few anecdotal studies of people hearing voices. So people who are like schizophrenic, they're hearing voices all the time. If you do an fMRI in a quiet room, you can see the auditory cortex firing because they're actually hearing the voice from inside their brain. So you can go in with a TMS device, put it wow. over that area using neural navigation so you know where you're going, and you can actually suppress the activation. And in real time, the voices tend to disappear. And then over a period of uh, you know, days and weeks, that uh, reduction seems to be uh, self-sustained. And that's proof of concept that we can make these changes. Uh, now, these are anecdotal reports, but they have to be studied in, in a much more systematic fashion. I guess the big question is if the voices are saying red rum, red rum, then you obviously wanted to turn them off. But if they're saying really good things, maybe you wanted to keep them around. But <laughs> right, but, but again, it's, it's, it's a dysfunction, right? I mean, you're hearing voices, exactly. but there's no auditory input. Right. <laughs> now, uh, this, is, this is really interesting because I, I did not expect you to bring up EMDR. Uh, I mean, you're, you're doing some alternative stuff with, with TMS, but you're also, uh, you know, a uh, uh, someone who uses pharmaceuticals, and I, I don't have a problem with pharmaceuticals or any of this stuff, but I find that the EMDR camp usually tends to be more psychologist and more like kind of therapeutic, more of the softer side. Uh, and for, for people listening, if you haven't heard me talk about EMDR on Bulletproof Radio before, I've referred clients out for this, this kind of treatment. It's one of the fastest things I've ever seen work on, on people who are stuck, whether it's full-on PTSD or just a behavior in the boardroom that, that they're consistently doing that they don't like. And they go in, they target it, they do one or two sessions, and they walk out of there like whatever that thing they were stuck on was seems like it's just been reprogrammed. And I've never seen anything work faster. I've done it myself on a few things, uh, and I'm, I'm much less reactive to those things that I was targeting. So um, 
wow, when you talk about EMDR, I'm, I'm really impressed that you're following this. How, how do you, in your mind, as a, as a medical doctor, work at the same time with techniques like EMDR plus pharmaceuticals plus TMS and know which of those things is working on a specific patient. Like, like doctors are trained to do one variable at a time, and you've got like four big things going on at the same time, which I love, by the way. But how do you know which one's working, or how do you know which one to do? Oh, that's an interesting question. It's an important question. So there is, you know, back in the day, in the 70s, we used to do what's called polypharmacy. We used to, you know, we didn't know what these drugs were doing. Half of them didn't work. So we'd like throw uh, the kitchen sink at someone, hope that we get lucky. 70s and 80s. Then we went, you know, the 90s, 80s, 90s, we went to the other extreme and we started doing very little. We started giving mini doses of milder medications that don't really work. We're the only field that went from strong medications that work to weaker medications uh, because of side effects. Now there is uh, uh, a belief, and certainly it's my belief, that we are going back, not to folly pharmacy, but to multimodal psychiatry. Yes. And that is important. It's not just a bunch of medications, but if you do not change uh, behavior with the medications, et cetera, you're not going to get the change. And, and that, it, I'm a strong believer of that. So that's why these, all these different modes of treatment make sense if you know how they fit together. Uh, you know, in, in the area that I do in neurogenesis, uh, what we, sh- we rather showed is that if you actually knock out neurogenesis in the hippocampus, antidepressants don't work, so it becomes a pivotal part of, of the treatment of depression, and there's a whole mechanism of how that works. But what's interesting is things that increase neurogenesis, including obviously the antidepressants, they work by increasing serotonin and norepinephrine. Things that decrease neurogenesis work through the glutamate uh, stress hormone pathway. So what we are doing with our treatments with medications is we are not reversing the pathology. We are competing with it. So if we do not change behavior, then we're not going to get too much bang out of our uh, medications. So, uh, you know, if somebody is drinking a lot of alcohol and taking Prozac, yeah, they may be growing a few neurons with Prozac, but they're killing it off with the alcohol. So behavioral changes is important to accompany this. And PTSD is, is one of them. And EMDR specifically, I find it interesting, basically based on my rat studies, actually, of all studies. So what you find is that the hippocampus is the area that regulates emotions and uh, a lot of the things that change rat behavior for the better is not because they don't, uh, uh, they don't they forget the task. It's because they forget the emotions around the task. So you teach a rat to run into some place and it gets shocked. And then eventually you do some manipulation and now it, it's, you know, it, it can run back in there. And what we mothers have found is it's not because they have uh, sort of forgotten what happens there, but really they are no longer fearful of getting the shock. So that concept uh, lends itself to EMDR in that what we're trying to do with these people is we're not trying to make them forget the memories. We are trying to make them have the memories, but without the emotional uh, context that is pathological. And that's the overall concept of EMDR, to keep training the brain over and over again to remember a certain event, but instead of thinking of the terrible bomb blast that went after that or whatever. They're focusing on sound or light or it's it. And eventually you take that memory circuit, which is linked to the fear memory, and you start linking it to this neutral memory. It's fascinating because a lot of what's happening there is is outside your conscious awareness, I, I would say. 
So the fact that you see something and all of a sudden you feel not happy and, and you get the PTSD symptoms, uh, unless it's something obvious like getting on an airplane freaks you out, a lot of people just don't know, but they're just mildly uncomfortable and cranky and they yell at the people around them and all that. Uh, when you're using this uh, multiple multiple technologies approach, I forget exactly what you called it. Um, multimodal. Multimodal, thank you. And when using a multimodal approach, and so say someone comes in and presents symptoms of PTSD, which a lot of people have who don't know it, a lot of people, um, then uh, how, how do you, what, what do you do first? Like, just kind of walk me through how, how you would think about the problem. I think people listening would be really interested uh, because there's a lot of people who have some things that they know they react to that are more than they should, and whether it's full-blown PTSD or it's just a trauma that left an imprint with a behavior pattern, um, who knows? But um, how, how would you go through that? Like someone walks in the door and says, I've got this stuff. Like, like what, what's the normal order of operations that you go through? Right. So uh, as you alluded to, the first thing is to make sure the diagnosis is correct. You know, PTSD, there are people who may have it who don't realize it, and we think that they're depressed. Then there are a lot of people who are, you know, don't have PTSD but use the term loosely. Yeah. So to have PTSD, you need to have an actual trauma. A trauma is something that threatens your integrity as a person. So it's either something that happened to you or something that you watched. You need to have a trauma. Without having a trauma, right. you know, your, your teacher yelled at you in school, yeah, that's not PTSD, right? <laughs> exactly. And then you have to have the triad of symptoms, you know, the avoidance, the re-experiencing, um, and the hypervigilance. So then you make the diagnosis. Then to me, there's a very important point at this point is that there are two, and this is still early data, and it's still theoretical, and not everyone believes it, but I strongly believe that there are two forms of PTSD. There is the avoidant form, and that's the form that, okay, I know what happened, I've you know, done my therapy for it, I've moved on, but I'm a little bit depressed, I need some help. Versus people uh, in whom they're constantly re-experiencing it. They're having flashbacks, they're having nightmares, uh, and you have to distinguish between the re-experiencing group and the avoidant group. The people, um, and just uh, there are two terms to describe this. There's repression and suppression. So repression is where something traumatic has happened. You're not quite sure what it is, but it keeps activating triggers uh, when you're in certain situations. And and then so the belief is, okay, you've something has happened, you've repressed it, you can't recall it. Then there's suppression. Suppression is where something bad happened, but you have consciously suppressed that memory and you've moved on. Okay, so those are the avoidant group. The ones who are repressed are the ones who are re-experiencing. So the people who are re-experiencing, they need things like EMDR. So they need to be able to go and talk about it and have these uh, sort of neutral emotions uh, combined with there are there's some data of actually suppressing uh, memory circuits. So, uh, you know, when you're thinking of a certain thought, that's when that memory is most vulnerable to be destroyed so people take like high dose beta blockers or uh, you know antibiotics. There's also this protein called PKM zeta, which is only expressed during long term potentiation or during memory activation. So in theory, in the future, when somebody's having a recollection of this thought, you give them a PKM zeta blocker, you can just block only that memory, and uh, certainly try to link that uh, whatever memory to neutral stimuli with the MDR. And so there's a whole slew of things that you can do in that group. The group that has suppressed it, that means they know the trauma and they've actually moved on, you do not dig it up again. And that's a yeah. big mistake. You know, it's not a one size fits all approach. So you might 
they're depressed, they're moody, you kind of treat that. But you do not go and say, okay, let's talk about your trauma and let's do EMDR for you. Because you're going to make them worse. You know, we, uh, you know, in New York City, after, obviously after 9-11, you know, uh, as a misfortune of having to see a lot of PTSD. And I've seen people who were doing very well because they've dealt with the trauma and moved on. Now go and get sort of this one-size-fits-all package of treatments and get too horribly uh, down the line. Uh, in terms of actual treatment, besides those therapies, the one treatment that, and this is obviously a, a self-serving statement, but the one treatment that I'm most impressed with is, PT, is TMS. Yeah. To me, TMS works better, at least in my experience, for PTSD than even for depression. And it is something we're really trying to push uh, to get FDA approved. We're trying to push it for uh, you know, soldiers and, and veterans. But uh, medications, especially for the re-experiencing difficult kind of uh, 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 PTSD do, are not that impressive. We use a combination of treatments, but TMS works well. The only medication that I've had a lot of promise, and this is uh, an important one, is that the hypervigilance that goes with, uh, with PTSD, it's mistakenly treated as anxiety. And people get on like benzos and all that, and they end up getting addicted. There's a very high uh, level of addic addiction and self-medication with alcohol. And that's the wrong thing to do. The hypervigilance with TMS with, sorry, with PTSD, needs to be treated by an alpha antagonist, such as prazosin. So an alpha antagonist, they block the sympathetic system. And the prazosin is the best one for it. Not only does it reduce hypervigilance, but it also reduces flashbacks and it can reduce nightmares. And I've seen so many PTSD patients who suffer for years and doctors aren't aware of this drug, which can be a quick fix, at least initially, till other things can create a permanent fix. So uh, again, multimodal approach, but not just uh, obviously therapy and medication, but even with medications, looking at different symptoms and different systems that you can treat both the psychiatric and in the case of prazosin, a cardiac medication. Very, uh, very fascinating stuff. Now we're, we're coming up on the end of the show and I've, I've had a great time. I hope it wasn't like too technical for some of the people listening. I, I did my best to translate a lot of the terms. Uh, but this is a chance to hear from, from you. One of the guys who's doing really pioneering work in using technology that lets people precisely take control of what's going on in their heads, which I, I think is, is amazing. I'm, I'm grateful that you took the time out of your research to come on the show. And there's, there's one more question that I've asked everyone on the show. And it's, it's given all of the stuff that you know, not just from your research, but just from life, if someone came to you and said, I want to perform better at everything I do in life, I, I want to kick ass every day at whatever, whatever my mission is, what are the three most important things that I should do? Well, exercise is one of them. Okay, cardio exercise, I think, is, is a very uh, important uh, treatment. So it's not white muscle exercise, but red muscle exercise. Uh, the other is you want to keep your mind intellectually occupied. Even in the, you know, playing worlds with friends or even chess, it constantly gets your brain cells working. It actually keeps you away from ruminations, which is the driving force of things like depression. Uh, so that's uh, the second thing. And the third thing is sleep. You know, we live in a time when, because, you know, we have so many screens around us uh, and so little time, insomnia is rampant. And the majority of insomnia that I've dealt with is, uh, is situational or behavioral. So if you go from looking at, at a screen that dilates your pupils to try and sleep, you're going to have take a few hours 
or you might do end up clock watching where you keep watching every minute and the clock watching is another cause of insomnia so i would say you know uh, keeping your mind busy exercise and sleep are the three important things that's a great list um in fact after the show i'll get your address i'll, I'll ship you a, a shield that we manufacture it's called the zen tech it goes okay. on your your iphone or your tablet and it blocks the spectrum of blue light that most suppresses melatonin. So if you huh. do look at your thing, at least you're not, you don't get the melatonin suppression that comes from looking at a, a light blue light because that's it's just like oh a, wow, I would love a, to yeah, see that. It's a ten or a twenty nanometer spectrum that's most impactful on on that. So you can at least get some sleep after you look at Facebook. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I would love to see that. What what uh, have some of the other questions answers been to that question? Oh, wow. Um, there's been about 250 of them, but you uh, sleep is a major one. In fact, you and Ariana Huffington uh, matched on that one for sure. Uh, exercise is a, another real common answer. In fact, and so is, is food. Like the, Those are the three most common things, like eat stuff that makes you stronger. And it's funny, interviewing people at the top of their game in research or CEOs or celebrities, it's generally those three things, but that's where the challenge comes because what do you actually do to sleep better? You know, what, right. what kind of food actually works better and, you know, what kind of exercise? Like I, I've found that high intensity sprinting or lifting very heavy things, usually with computers telling me how to do it better, that works better. But there are people who will swear that running a marathon every week is the right thing. Mm-hmm. So that there's, there's room for discussion in there. Right. right. I agree. Where can people find out more about TMS or more about your research if they'd like to, to read this? There are a great number of physicians who listen to Bulletproof Radio, and some of them may actually be quite interested in, in reaching out. Well, the area, the, the one place that has all is on our website. I think it's contemporarytms.com or contemporarytms.org. It has uh, everything that we do for TMS, but all the main studies. And it has my bio with some of the other areas of research that I'm involved in. Great. So contemporarytms.com or .org. I'll put that right. link in the show notes when we publish okay, this on, on Bulletproof Radio on the blog. That'll make sure everyone can find your stuff. And thanks for taking time out of your day to, to chat. I, I had a great time. Thanks a lot. I enjoy myself, too. Thank you, David. If you enjoyed today's episode, do me a favor. Go ahead and learn some more about TMS and what it can do for your head And while you're at it, pick up a copy of the Bulletproof Diet book or get your month's supply of Bulletproof coffee or check out bulletproofconference.com and get ready to go to the coolest conference on biohacking ever. And I'll keep bringing you guys like Tarek Pereira here because this was a really fun episode. Have a great day. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. 
This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.